All right, good morning, everybody. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 through 16. We'll be here for two weeks. Um, our title is A Call to Holiness. This will be part one. And then next week, we will look at uh, part two. Now, for the first 12 verses of, of Peter's letter, uh, he hasn't given us any commands. Um, he just blesses God. He celebrates this great salvation uh, that we've been given. And, uh, but he doesn't give us any commands, any exhortations, anything like that. Then in last week, in verse 13, he gives us his very first command for the Christian life. And that is, he tells us to hope fully, or set your hope fully in the grace of God. And if you'll remember from last week, he said, uh, clear up your mind, unhinder your mind, prepare your mind for action, think rightly, fill it with truth, do those things so you can set your hope fully on the grace of God. Now today, today we come to the second command um, and that is in our verses. So let's read this, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children, <clears throat> do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, <clears throat> I need to give a few thoughts before we get into the actual Scripture. And we're not going to make it very far. In fact, I'm going to focus today on four words. Before we get in there very far, I need to give you a few thoughts at the beginning. <clears throat> we live in a world where if I went to Winn-Dixie and I just picked a typical person and I said, what is a holy man? They would probably say, well, you know those Buddhist monks over there in, in India, or you know those Muslim monks, or, or, or even a witch doctor. I mean, literally, I, I just Googled holy man, and that's what I got. Monks, Buddhist monks, Muslim monks, even these spiritual witch doctor guys. That's what people call a holy man. Are, are you with me? Not a Christian. Nobody would say, oh, Derek's a holy man. Nobody would even think that way, to be quite honest with you. They, 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 they've got a completely different idea of what it means to be a holy person. We live in a culture where holiness is not seen as a virtue, but a vice. If I call somebody a holy roller, or if I say they're holier than thou, listen, guys, that's not a term of respect. You don't call people a holy roller as a term of respect. That is a term of derision. So, so, so we don't call people holy even... It's not a virtue. It, it, that We see it as a, as a vice, as a not-so-good thing. Even in our churches as a whole, holiness is not really seen as a requirement of the Christian life. You, I can pretty much guarantee you grab a thousand sermons and 99% of them won't be on holiness. It's just not something we talk a lot about, not something we preach a lot about, not something we teach you all about. We've had, we've said this the last couple of weeks. We seem comfortable adding God as just an add-on, as a life insurance policy. 
but we don't, again, as churches as a whole, we don't see holiness as a, as a requirement in the Christian life. But let me tell you, that is not the message of the Bible. That ain't the message of the Bible. Scripture calls for a radical change for those who trust Jesus Christ. And the word that it uses most often to call for this change is the word repent. You see, repent means to turn 180 degrees and not only change your thinking, but also change your actions, your behavior, your, your conduct. You see, when we're saved, we're saved from the kingdom of darkness and we are transferred into the kingdom of light. We are saved from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness. We're slave from our heathen, pagan ways to live a life of holiness, a new life. That's what we're saved from and for. Now, we want to live a life of holiness because that's where the Bible calls us to do or what the Bible calls us to do. Now, here's my question. Where do I start? How do I, how do I start this thing? I had this, this last, I usually start Monday morning. Tomorrow morning, I'll get up, go get on my computer and start working on next week's lesson. Last week, I worked on this Monday. I worked on this Tuesday. And by Wednesday morning, I was completely done, and I threw it away and started over. Completely started over, because I made a mistake. And I knew as I was, even as I was putting the lesson together, something's not right, I'm missing something here, I'm doing something wrong. And then after I got the lesson completely done and read through it, I realized, okay, you, you missed it, Derek. Now, what was my mistake? You see, sometimes when we get into a passage of Scripture... We dig down into the details. Last week, we dug down into the details of hope, did we not? This week, we're going to start digging into the details of holiness. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. We absolutely should dig into the details. Okay, so that's not the problem. But here's the mistake I made. I missed the forest for the trees. We've got an old saying, you know, they missed the forest for the trees. I missed the big thing because I was too focused on the little things. Everybody with me? Let me tell you, in the Christian life, the forest is this. Your life should be a life permeated by God. Permeated by God. You see, when we read the New Testament, you, that's the stunning truth that we find, that God should be everything to us. What are you talking about, Derek? Everything, all the details should be God-centered. So, for example, last week, 1 Peter 13, he says, Set your hope, what? On the grace of God. See, your hope should be God-centered. Your forgiveness should be God-centered. Ephesians 4.32, forgive others, what? As Christ has forgiven you. See, all the details emanate out of this relationship with this holy God. Even our marriage, for example, uh, Ephesians 5, to 25, Wives, submit to your husbands, what? As to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see how it's all God-centered? It's all predicated on what God has done for us? I was listening to a podcast last week. I was traveling, and the, the man that was, was on a panel, and they were asking him questions. And he's in his 70s and been married for 50 years, and... And they ask him as, as a minister, as a pastor, you know, you write these books, you travel, you do all this stuff. How have you maintained a strong marriage? What have you done over the years to invest in your 
wife and in your marriage? And his answer was dead on, 100% correct. He said, the main thing I do to invest in my marriage is I invest in my relationship with God. See, he got it. He understood that his, his relationship with his wife, his relationship with her and his marriage emanates from his relationship with God. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the details. You can go to Scooter's class, Love and Respect, and, and that's a great class. I've gone to it. You can, you can go to conferences on marriage. You can read the five love languages. You can do all the details. But listen, if you do all that and you forget about this, that's a, that's a complete waste of time. Are you with me? That This is what matters, our relationship with the Holy God. Focus on that, and the details will work themselves out of that. That was an excellent answer that he, that he gave there. You see, all the details should be God-centered. And it's no different with holiness. It's exactly what Peter says, 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. Our holiness has to be God-centered. That's why I made a mistake. You see, I spent a whole, I spent three days working on a study about personal holiness, and I forgot, I forgot that any discussion of personal holiness has to begin and end with the holiness of God. That's what I, that, so I just put that aside and went back, and that's what we're going to talk about today is the holiness of God. You see, if I, if I walk in here today and say, let's talk about holiness, you're going to immediately think, you know what, we're going to start talking about what we shouldn't do. That's people's definition of holiness, what we shouldn't do. That's not the definition of holiness at all. And in any discussion of our holiness has not to begin with what we don't do. It begins with who God is. And that's where we have to start. By the way, that's where Peter starts. Be holy because he's holy. So if Peter's going to start there, that's absolutely where I'm going to start. Now, I want to start with a, a definition of holiness. And, and, I, and I need to start here because holy is, a, is, is kind of an odd word. And you'll see that here in just a minute. And like I said, I think we get a lot of preconceived notions about what it means. And most of us think, uh, I said it earlier, we call somebody holier than thou. Why do we do that? Because they won't do certain things. So we've got this idea of holiness all wrapped up in what we do and what we don't do. But what is the definition of holiness? Well, the word holiness comes from the root word to cut. And it, and it literally means to separate or to be set apart. And, and in actuality, when we use the word holy to describe a person, place, or thing, the definition really turns out to be pretty straightforward. When something is holy... It is separated from what is common and is separated to God. That's a really good definition. When something is holy, it is separated from being common and it is separated to God. Let me give you some examples of that definition. For example, a day can be holy. Exodus 31.15, God said this, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. You say, he says, you got six days to do the common things. Six days to, 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 to cut your, you know, go, go cut the hay field. Six days to take care of your animals. Six days to do all the things you knew. But the seventh day, you set it apart. Everybody with me? That's a holy day. So, so a day can be holy. People can be holy. 
Second uh, Chronicles twenty three six. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priest and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. Back in the Old Testament, you had certain men who were separated to work in the temple. Listen, they didn't go out and take care of the goats. They didn't go out and herd the sheep. They didn't go out and get the water. They didn't do common things. They were set apart to minister to God. That was their job. That's why they were called holy. They were separated from what's common, and they're separated to God. Listen, even inanimate objects can be holy. Exodus 30, 27 to 29, and the table and all the utensils and the lampstand and the altar of incense, the basin and its stand, you shall consecrate them so that they may be holy. In other words, if you got a water basin, that water basin is used for one thing and one thing only, and that's the temple. You don't take it outside and, and feed the goats out of it. You don't take it outside and, and wash your feet. That's common. Holy means it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's used only for the purposes of God in ministering to Him. So you can have days, inanimate objects, people. They can all be holy. And that's really the, what holy means is the opposite of to be common, to be defiled, to be unclean. When something is holy, it is separated from that, and it is separated to God or for His use. Now... How is God holy? How is God holy? If we want to know what Scripture means when it calls God holy, the easiest thing to do is just read Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So I want to, I'm going to give you three texts or three Scriptures that describe God as holy. And I want you to read what it says. 1 Samuel 2.2 2, There is none holy like the Lord. For, that word for means because, there's none beside you. There is no rock like you. Isaiah forty twenty five. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Hosea eleven nine. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. You see, what makes God holy, those three scriptures say he's not man. He's not a man. He is incomparable and there's none like him. You see, what makes God holy is that He is set apart from us and anything else that is common, that is impure, that is defiled, that is unclean. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, says this, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. In other words, He is so far above and beyond us, it's almost like He's totally foreign to us. He's unlike anything we've ever encountered. He's unlike anything that's even in our knowledge to know. He is completely separate. His holiness is, is what He is as God and no one else will ever be. He's unequal. He's unrivaled. He's indescribable. He's uncomparable. You know, the, 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 the thing we do, he, the words just go on and on and on. He's perfect. He's at, without beginning or ending. He's, he has no need of improvement. His holiness is the epitome of His infinite value. It's His majesty. It's His divinity. It's His greatness. It's His... It's, listen, here's the problem with His holiness. And I, and I want to get this too. You can try to describe it, but here's what is inevitably going to happen. You're going to run out of words. You will run out of words. 
Your language, literally, you can try all the nouns and all the adjectives and all the things to describe this God. And this is what God says. There's, I'm, you can't compare me. You got nothing in your experience to compare me to. I am completely separate from anything you've ever seen or known or experienced. Your English words cannot even come close. You see, that's what holy means. That's what holy means. You're just left with the word holy. See, God is holy and there's nothing like Him. He is set apart or separated from us and anything else that is unclean, impure, defiled, common. And by the way, that is the most fundamental truth about God of them all, is that He is God. There's no other. There's no other creator. There's no other healer. There's no other savior. There's no other rock. There's no other sustainer. There is no other. See, that's what makes him God, and that's what makes him holy. I mean, it's really an odd word. You, if I tried to start explaining it, I'd just run out of language. I, I can't. I'm just left with the word holy. Let me tell you, in the Bible, you never hear angels say, love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or justice, justice, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. It's like this word that just, it's the best we can do to describe this indescribable God. Now, is this important, that God is holy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it's important. And it's not just a subject for scholars. It's not just a a theological discussion. This should be a matter of great importance to every living soul, saved and unsaved, but especially, especially to believers, especially to Christians. R.C. Sproul again says this, The holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. You have to, how can you, you just, I I, I, I struggle, I really do. I struggle putting it into words. In fact, here's my problem. I want to teach on the holiness of God and I can't find the words. I literally have trouble finding the words. But I want to show you how important it is. And so what I decided is the best way I can do it is to give you some incidents from Scripture. Some things that happen, some examples from Scripture. Now, I could pick out multiple ones. I'm going to pick out two. And it shows the importance of the holiness of God to believers. They're both really interesting. The first one I'm going to show you is Moses. Now, here's the thing. I want you to notice in these stories the link between God's holiness and your obedience. The link in these stories between God's holiness and your obedience. The first one is Moses. Both of these stories you know, um, and we're going to go through them. And the first one is uh, from Numbers 20 and, and Numbers 27. Moses has led uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, right? We all know the, the, the ten plagues, the uh, let my people go, Charlton Heston, right? We all watched that great movie and, and the parting of the Red Sea and and all of that. What a, what a story, right? It's better than any, any movie you could ever, ever dream up. Well, where do we, you know, where we don't get, we, we kind of get them coming out of Egypt and then they, that's where the movie kind of stops and they don't really kind of go on. But they come out of Egypt and they're in the desert and they come to a place called Kadesh. And Kadesh literally means holy. And they get there and they've run out of water. 
their, their, their water bags or canteens are all empty, whatever they carried water in, and there's no springs, they can't find any rivers, they're completely uh, out of water. And, and if you go back and read Numbers 20, it's, it, the Bible's pretty uh, good in its language. It said the people assembled themselves together against Moses. In other words, they formed a mob. So they literally formed a mob, and they come against Aaron and, and Moses, and they begin to quarrel with them. And they're a bunch of whiners and complainers and all this stuff God has done for them. They've already forgotten about it. And they basically said, you misled us. You brought us out of, out of Egypt where we had plenty to, uh, to drink and plenty to eat. They forgot they were slaves, but, but that didn't matter to them, right? We had plenty to eat and drink and you brought us out here and you brought us out here to die. And the fact that there's no water is kind of like the last straw. And this is Numbers 20, 6 through 8. Then Moses and Aaron went to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take your staff, and assemble the congregation, assemble all the people, and you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, speak to the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Okay? Very simple. Go out there, get everybody together. There's a big rock. You speak to that rock and say, yield your water, and the rock will give, rock will give water. Now, Moses is absolutely furious with the people. All that God has done for them, all that He has done for them, and, and they, again, they're a bunch of whiners and complainers, and he is, he is angry. He is mad. So he gets them all together, and he goes up to the rock, and in his anger, he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake. You see, he should have let the holiness of God override his anger, but he let his anger override the holiness of God. And he does something else. Numbers 20, 10 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. You can tell me he's mad. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. Now listen, how many of here have lost your temper? Who hasn't, right? We've all lost our temper. And by the way, I've lost my temper and done a lot worse things than striking, uh, striking a rock with a stick, right? Yet this, what he did was so serious in God's sight that God said, you will not go to the promised land. It was so serious in God's sight that he said, you will not enter into the promised land. Now that has, doesn't that bother you? Moses, come on. That, that bothers me. I told somebody, I was talking to somebody else about this, and they said, that, that's always bothered me, they said. And it bothers me. This is Moses. Come on, all that he's done, and you're going to keep him out of the promised land for striking a rock? Why would God do it? Numbers twenty twelve. God tells him, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. You see that? Because you didn't believe in me enough to, to, to do what I told you to do. You did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. Therefore, you're not going to go into the promised land. By the way, 40 years go by. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They finally come to the edge of the promised land. Numbers 27, this is 40 years later. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into the mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. And after you've seen it, you're going to die. You're going to be gathered to your people. Why? Because you rebelled against my word, failing to uphold me as holy 
in the eyes of the people. You didn't uphold me as holy. You didn't see me as holy. And by the way, how did you demonstrate that? You disobeyed against my commands. You didn't do what I told you to do. Guys, listen, this is Moses. (laughs) This is Moses. And I want you to notice in both statements that irreverence for the fear of God, a failure for the holiness of God, a failure to fear God is directly linked with disobedience. That's what he said. You didn't believe me. You rebelled against my word. In both those cases, you did not uphold me as holy. Now, what that tells me is that when you and I as believers fail to believe His word, when we fail to obey His commands, we're doing the same thing as Moses. We're not upholding Him as holy. Let me tell you, Moses is one of the greatest, most righteous men ever to walk this planet. He's in heaven right now. Yet his irreverence for the holiness of God had consequences. If, if Moses, what about me? You don't think God's going to hold me accountable for not upholding his holiness? The second thing I want to show you, the second incident is about a man named Uzzah. So write that down, go home, name your kids Uzzah, and that'll see how, see how that goes. This guy's name's Uzzah. This is in 2 Samuel 6. Great story. I'm sure you've all heard it. So this is back in the days of King Saul. The Philistines had made war against Israel, and uh, they had captured the Ark of God. And for those of you that don't know what the Ark of God is, I'll explain that in a minute. But they, it's this chest. And uh, they had captured it, and they took it back to a city called Ashdod. And that was where their temple was. And they had a god by the name of Dagon. It was a big statue. So they put the they put the the ark in their temple, and they come in the next morning. And their god has fallen over, and they think, well, you know, that's weird. Maybe, maybe there was a, a tremor last night, so they set him back up. They come in the next day; it's fallen over again. His hands are broke off the statue, and they're like, but the bigger thing that happened is the people started breaking out with tumors. All the people in the city started breaking out with tumors. So what did they do? Well, they did the smart thing. Let's send it to another city. So, so they sent it to a city called Gath. And it gets over to this city called Gath, and guess what? All the people in that city break out with tumors. So they, they said, well, what do we do? Well, let's send it to another city. So they sent it to a city called Ekron. And when the people saw it coming, they started panicking, right? Because, I mean, the word is spread. Sure enough, it gets there, and they start breaking out in tumors. So all the people call the leaders and say, look, you got to do something. you got to get rid of this so after having it seven months, they decide we got to get rid of it. We got to send it back to Israel. First Samuel chapter six, two through nine. The Philistines. By the way, guys, listen. These are unbelievers. Listen to this. This is unbelievers. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, "What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty, but by all means, return it with a guilt offering. Now, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. Now listen. Remember what holy means? What's holy? Set apart from common, used for God. They were unbelievers and they had enough respect They had enough reverence for the things of God that they took a cart that had never carried water, that had never carried hay, that had never been used for anything common, and they used that to carry the ark. That's respect. 
They took two milk cows on which there had never been a yoke. They had never pulled a cart. And they put them and they hooked them up. Again, that is respect. And then they said, take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And they send it off and they let it go on its way. Now let me talk a little bit about the ark of God. The ark of God was a chest that was a symbol of the presence of God. In the temple or the tabernacle, it was in a place called the Holy of Holies. Nobody went in there. The only person that went in there was one time a year, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. Inside of this chest was the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod. Can you imagine that? Inside that chest, the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod are all sitting in that chest. On top of that chest are two seraphim, two angels. And that's called the mercy seat. And that is literally where the presence of God would come down and dwell and meet with the priest. Excuse me, this thing was so holy, so holy, that the priest had set out, God had set out, excuse me, specific instructions on how it was to be handled. Numbers 4, 5 through 6 said this, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on that a cloth of blue. There was a, a veil. Remember that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was split in two. This veil covered the entrance to the Holy of Holies. So when they would move the tabernacle, they would take down that veil and nobody would look at it and they'd take it over and they'd cover the ark. Then on top of that, they would put a goat skin and on top of that, they would put a blue cloth. That's how holy it was. That's how dangerous it was to look at it. I mean, it. Uh, come on, you're all thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? How many of y'all seen the... I'm just, you're thinking it, right? You don't look at that thing. I don't know what it'll do to you, but, but everybody's thinking that, right? But that's, that's the Ark, right? And then it was to be carried in a certain way. Exodus 25, you shall cast four rings of gold for it, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles in the rings and that's how you carry the ark. So the idea was you put this pole through these two rings, you had four men that would carry this thing. Nobody would ever touch it. It didn't get touched. You didn't, you didn't look at it. it very specific instructions. So the Philistines, now by the way, the Philistines didn't know any of that, right? They, they, weren't, a, they weren't familiar with all that. But they did the best they could with the knowledge they had, and God didn't kill them. He let them go, but I want you to watch what happens. These cows leave the Philistines, and they make their way down this road, and they come to a city called Beth Shemesh. And the people in that city are Israelites. They're familiar with the law. They know the Word of God. They know all about the ark. And instead of going out of their way to take precautions, they looked at it. And it says God killed 50,000 of them. 50,000. 1 Samuel 6, 19-21, He struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy God? You, you just don't mess. See, listen, and I'm going to say this by the end. I may say this a couple more times. Listen, God is loving. And God is good. And God is kind. But we need to be reminded that God is holy. You don't play with a holy God. You just don't do it. 
You reverence Him. You fear Him. And there are consequences for both unbelievers and believers. And I'm going to show you, the more knowledge you have, the more is required of you. I used to tell the young people, coming to church is a dangerous place. Coming to church is a dangerous place. If you're not going to serve God, you'd be better off to get out of here and shut your ears. Because every piece of knowledge that goes into your head, you're going to be required before the Lord. It is a dangerous thing. So the men, Beth Shemesh, a bunch of them get killed. So there's people from another city called Kiriath Jerim. They come and they take the ark and they bring it back to a house of a guy by the name of... And by the way, nobody knows what to do with it because there's all kind of turmoil in the kingdom. So they bring it to this house of this guy by the name of Abinadab and they consecrate his son. They make his son holy. And they say, you're going to take care of the ark. And he does it, and it stays in that man's house for 20 years. 20 years. And finally, 20 years go by, David becomes king, and David decides it's time, let's go get the ark, and let's bring it back to Jerusalem, and let's put it in its rightful place in the temple. And he comes with 30,000 men. 2 Samuel 6, 3-4. And they carried... How does he do this? And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Does David not know better? See, the Philistines got away with that because they didn't know any better. That was a sign of respect. This isn't a sign of respect. I'm sorry. They put it on a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. So here they are. It's a great day. Everybody, if you go back and read it, they're singing, they're dancing, they're playing the the flute. Everybody's just having a good time. It's a big celebration. But they've forgotten how holy this ark was. They'd forgotten that it literally represented the presence of God. And they had forgotten the instructions that God said, this is how this thing is supposed to be handled. And by the way, if they had handled it the way that God told them to, nobody could touch it. They would have not accidentally touched it. But see, somebody did touch it. Second Samuel 6, 6 through 7, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died right there before the ark of God. By the way, David gets angry. David gets angry, and it's like, really? Why would you get angry? You did this. You didn't reverence the holiness of God the way you should have. You see, once again, believers disobeying the specific commands of God, being irreverent, not upholding the holiness of God. You see, even when our motives are sincere, people, you need to be careful. Even when your motives are sincere, you need to remember that we serve a holy God. I'm only going to give you those two. I could go on. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to God, they're dead. The Corinthians, eating the the Lord's Supper irreverently, what happened to them? Paul said some of them are sick and some of them already died. I could talk about the, the, the Apostle John who when he was a young man, leaned against Jesus' chest when they would sit at a table. On the Isle of Patmos, he sees the resurrected Christ and he falls at his feet like a dead man. 
because he saw the holiness of, of God. I could go on and on and on. Here's the thing. Irreverence is a dangerous mistake to make with a holy God. He is to be revered as holy. And His commands are to be obeyed. When we don't obey His commands, we are not acknowledging His holiness. We're not fearing Him. We're not upholding Him as holy. And that, you don't play with that. Like I said, God is good and kind and loving and generous and all those things. But you don't forget that He's also holy. And we need to be reminded of that. I want to close with this. What should our response be to the holiness of God? I'm going to give you three things. Number one, we are unclean. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. Two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah is just starting his ministry. I, if you go back and read all this, and I'm going to do this very quickly, uh, uh, King Uzziah has died, and it, it really is the end of a golden era for the kingdom of Judah. And the, bad, the, the good times are over, the bad times are about to begin. And God needs a prophet who will stand for him and speak the truth to the people. And he chooses Isaiah. But I'm going to tell you, his ministry was not going to be a success in the world's eyes. He's going to be hated for his message. His, his message is going to be spurned. Nobody wants to listen to him. They're not going to like him. So Isaiah is about to start this ministry where he needs to be strong and effective and, and speak the truth. And, and Are you with me? And nobody's going to like him. Like I said, everybody's going to, going to reject him. What does he need to fulfill that ministry? He needs a revelation of the holiness of God. And that's exactly what God gave to Isaiah. As dramatic a vision of God's holiness as anybody has ever seen. And by the way, when he sees the holiness of God, what's his, what's his reaction? Is it, it, does he think, boy, what a great person I am? Boy, I'm special. I must be really something. No, no, that's not what it... In fact, it was the exact opposite. He saw how sinful he was. Isaiah 6, 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But you see, it's this revelation of God's holiness that carried him through. Just like Paul on the road to Damascus, he sees Christ. See, both of those men never forgot, even though they're being beaten, even though they're being spurned and reviled, both of those men never forget the God they serve, the holy God that they serve. And it carried them through the good times and the bad. Our second reaction to the holiness of God, fear. Fear. See, sometimes we don't talk. I know Henry preached on this uh, a year or so ago. The appropriate response to the holiness of God is fear. I mean reverence. And the outworking of fear is obedience. Listen to these scriptures from Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 16.6, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Proverbs 14.27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death.
So you, there's something. Fear of God is not a bad thing. Right? What did, what did, did Jesus say? Don't fear man. Don't fear what man can do to you. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. By the way, that's not the devil. That's God. God has that power. Fear God. It's like a, a relation. I was talking to somebody the other day about our relationships with our fathers. A, a proper relationship with your father is always a mixture of love and a little bit of fear. Yes? You need to love them, but you need a little bit of fear of them too. That's a good relationship with God. Don't take Him for granted. Don't take His holiness for granted. Reverence Him. Finally, and this is kind of a segue into next week, our third response should be sanctification or our personal holiness. Let me tell you, the holiness of God is the reason we're commanded to live holy lives. This is what Peter says today, 1 Peter 15 and 16, but as He who called you is holy, as He is set apart from what is common and what is unclean and what is unpure, you be the same. You be set apart in your conduct, in your behavior. Be holy, for as it is written, I am holy. Listen, that's He is our Father and we are His children, and we should represent what He is. Holiness, don't forget this, holiness is our calling. Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, listen to what it says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. Before you're ever born, before the world's ever created, He looks ahead and He says, I choose Derek and I choose him to be holy. Now it's time to walk it out. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. For what? What do you want us to do, Peter? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, this is what we are made holy to do. This is what we are set apart to do, to proclaim His excellencies. And preeminent among the excellencies of God is His holiness. As we emulate that, we show who our Father is. How are we to do this? We do it through sanctification. We do it through personal holiness. We do it through obedience to His commands. And that will take us to next week's lesson, and and we'll focus next week on what Peter asked us to do through personal holiness. Let's pray. Father.